Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 12, verse 9, and then 15 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Gigi. So good morning. Good to see you. You did, you did well. You invited some people. It's a bigger crowd this week than last week, believe it or not. Once the kids leave, it looks a little more sparse, but uh, glad to have you here. Thank you for all of your work and effort and uh, this two-service thing we've been doing. Uh, we keep taking Romans 12 in these small little chunks, don't we? And I, that's different for us. I hope that you enjoy that. Um, Lloyd, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I'm reading kind of his sermons on, on Romans, he says, you know, Romans itself is a summary and so really what he says we're meant to do is take that summary and then expand on it. And so that's what we're trying to do in taking two or three verses here in chapter 12 because there's just such rich stuff here in these, in, you know, in these commands that Paul's just gushing with. He's telling us all the things now, the implications of everything that he's been teaching us in the first 11 chapters. Now the entire section that we're looking at uh, in these weeks in this chapter 12 really is a description, if you look there beginning in verse 9, and, I, and we, we pulled back into it, uh, 9 through 21 really is a description of that phrase in verse 9 of, of genuine love. This is what real love looks like, what Paul's describing for us here. Now, we need to remember that faith leads to love. Romans 1 through 11 outlines what it means to believe the gospel. Romans 12 through 16 shows us what it means to become the gospel. And believing the gospel always leads to becoming the gospel because faith leads to love. Faith empowers love. That's why... Romans 1 through 11 comes first. Love, as we've read uh, in our community Bible reading recently, is the test of faith because you cannot love without faith. It's just too hard. C.S. Lewis said that if you choose to love in a fallen world, you're choosing to live with a broken heart. I mean, it's hard to love and not lose heart and to disengage and to shut your heart down. These are the temptations we face. But Romans 12 describes a person who is fully engaged. That's the word I would use. Engaged with God, engaged with, uh, with God's people in the church, engaged with neighbors who are outside the church through hospitality, and even with enemies. We're going to see that next week. Even with people who are set against you and hostile towards you. Because the gospel doesn't just stay outside. Uh, the, the power of the gospel is that it comes inside. It, it grabs your heart Right? It reaches in and it takes a hold of the innermost parts of your motivational core and changes you from that level. Becoming a Christian is like being flatlined. And then the gospel comes and it zaps your heart. And your heart starts to beat in ways it did not before. And the telltale sign of a person who has experienced this change of heart that the gospel brings is that they engage, they connect. They don't remain detached. They don't remain indifferent. They show up and they're energetic, and they're engaged, and they stay engaged with God, with people, with, with things. Now, this morning, so as we're talking about the way the gospel of grace in Jesus helps us to love, this morning, uh, really, the issue that we're going to look at is this. Are you engaged emotionally with other people as they go through the joys and heartaches of life? Have you really given your heart to other people uh, or are you staying at a distance, right? Are you staying kind of safely removed from 
uh, the things that happen in other people's lives? Do you engage emotionally? Are you rejoicing when they rejoice and, and weeping when they weep? Because that's an important part of love. And so we want to see here, again, in this whole section that's summarizing what love that is genuine looks like, we want to define first, again, what love is. We want to define it using these verses, at least, because this is a new perspective. Secondly, we want to see, uh, because we're told here as well, uh, how love is threatened. And then lastly, we want to ultimately rest in and rejoice in the way that uh, in Jesus God has come to make sure that our love is secured. So we want to see love defined, love threatened, and love, to, love secured. It's the plot line of every great story, and so I hope this is a great story for you as well. So let's start first uh, with love defined. Here's what the text says. Look there again uh, in what Gigi read just a minute ago. Let love be genuine. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now there's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 12, uh, Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this. He says, we are one body. And if one part suffers, we all suffer together. And if one part is honored, we all rejoice together. So Lloyd-Jones, I told you I've been reading his sermons, commentating on these verses, he wrote this. He said, nothing can happen to any one of us without it happening to all of us. Isn't that a great little statement? Nothing can happen to any one of us without it happening to all of us. And if you want to kind of steer our repentance this morning, let me just say this, that until that is true, we are not a New Testament church. The church is a body. That's what we're told here in Romans 12. Jonathan Edwards defined love as putting your happiness in the happiness of another. And really, isn't that what Jesus said when he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor? How? Are you awake? I'm testing you. As yourself. And so it's, it's, it's really, Edwards was just meditating on what Jesus said. If you love someone, then their happiness is what makes you happy. Love is tying your happiness to someone else's happiness so tightly that if they're happy, then you can't be sad. You have to enter into the happiness with them. Even if you feel sad, right? Their happiness makes you rejoice. You get over your sadness for their sake. And if they're sad, then you can't be happy. Their grieving causes you to grieve too, no matter how good it's going in your life. Now, I'll tell you where I've learned this the most. Uh, and I had to be taught this because this, this doesn't come natural to any of us, and it didn't come naturally to me either. But I've learned it uh, in parenting because in parenting, if you're, if you're a parent, uh, you're always doing things you don't really want to do for the sake of your kids. Parents, amen. There you go. Thanks, Rick. So you go to movies. I'm, a sh if I'm embarrassed to tell you the movies that I've seen in the last two, three years of my life. I would never, never on my own go to the movies that I've seen. Uh, but I remember one, one story I was thinking about when my, when my youngest daughter, Sarah, was maybe five or six years old. There, uh, there was a certain book she liked to read every night before bed. And when I say every night, I mean every night. Now, if you've been to our house, our house is full of books. We have hundreds of books. But there seems to always be this one book. It's always the same book. And it was like this with all four of our kids. Now, thankfully, it's been four different books, but everybody's kind of locked onto a book, and they want this book every night before they go to bed. And so I, uh, it got so bad with her that I, I would hide the book, I'm ashamed to say. And one time, the book went missing for about three months. So I got a break. And then somehow, she found it. I don't know if she... We're, we homeschooled, so I guess she had all day to kind of dig through the things and look for it. But... And so, um, so every night I would, I would say, go pick out a book for us to read. And she would come into her bedroom with a big grin on her face. <laughs> if you know Sarah, 
kind of like a sly, like, mm-hmm, I got you, kind of grin on her face, and then in the book. And um, because she knew, I mean, she knew it was a joke. Uh, I would beg her. I'm not kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I'm really embarrassed. But I would just beg her, can we please, can we please read another book? I'm tired of this book. And then, of course, she would give me puppy dog eyes and little girl cuteness, and I would give in, and we would read the book, and I hated it. It was awful. All I could think of was I was trying to skip pages to get through it as fast as I could. It would go on forever, and, but she would laugh at the same parts. Every, I mean, she just loved it. Now, my favorite memory was the one night we got done reading, and uh, I was particularly grumpy about it. And we were just about, I mean, we were at the end. I could see the finish line. The game was on the TV. I was almost there. And Abby, who was eight at the time, came into the room, and she saw us reading. And she said, oh, I love that book. Will you read it to me next? And I had to read it twice. Now, it's a little story, uh, but parenting has really taught me to love. Uh, I've had to learn to put my joy in their joy because, listen, if you're a parent, there is no other way to survive parenting. You will be miserable as a parent if you can't learn how to do this because it's kind of the job description. Here's what I'm going to say to you. You'll be miserable in life. If you can't learn how to do this. Because it's kind of the job description of being made in the image of God. If you, if you can learn, if you can learn what I'm talking about here, how to put your love in the, in, the, in the happiness, in love, to put your happiness in the happiness of other people, then there are new heights of happiness and meaning and, and uh, purpose for you. I mean, Christmas morning, listen, is way more fun for the parents than it is for the kids. Because when you're a kid, it's the thrill of getting all the things you want, right? But when you're a parent, it's the thrill of seeing your kids so happy, even if you don't get anything, and that's way better. Because that's the way we've been made. That's the way we've been designed. It's to love and to give and to serve, not to be served. And so it's a fundamental act of humility, what we're talking about here, isn't it? I mean, love requires humility. That's kind of the thesis this morning. You really can't do this without humility, because you can't be selfish. I mean, the text goes on to say in verse 16, do not be haughty, uh, but associate with the lowly. So it's calling us to humility. And humility, of course, we've said this before, is self-forgetfulness. I mean, in love, whether it's in parenting or marriage or friendship, you're not there for you, you're there for the other person. You're there to give and not, not to get. And so you're, you're not thinking about yourself. You're not connecting every experience that you're having or someone else is having to you and how you're feeling and what you're thinking and all those kinds of things. I mean, when you love... The other person is the big deal. You're, you know, if they're happy, then you're happy. And if they're hurting, then entering into that, incarnating with them in that means that, you, that you're going to be hurting too. This is what it means to count others more significant than yourself, as Paul said in Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. And he says in the next verse, to look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And, and this is why... The way we talk about love in our culture is so damaging. Self-fulfillment is not at the heart of love. Humility is. But let me be careful to say, too, that I know this sounds a little bit like codependency. It's not. That's not, not love. Codependency is needing the other person to be happy, not being able to be happy unless, you know, unless they're happy. And so an important part of love um, is needing people less so you can love them more. Love doesn't mean losing yourself. It means denying yourself there's still a clear sense here of of where me ends and you begin there are boundaries of course paul says i'm free from all 
But I make myself a slave to all, not because I need to, but because of love. The love is putting your happiness in the happiness of the other person. Second, though, we see how this is threatened here as well. Love threatened. And the danger is the flip side of what we've read already from uh, verses 15 and 16. And I'd really say it's really the sin of envy. If love is rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, then envy is, if you flip that around, rejoicing when people are weeping and weeping when people are rejoicing. It turns this around, see? So remember, we're interested in genuine love, sincerity, outwardly the same as what's happening inwardly. And envy is hidden beneath the surface of your life. And a lot of times, it's hidden beneath the surface of friendship. Kierkegaard called it a small-town sin. Because it happens among people who know one another well and have a long history with one another. Typically, you don't envy people you don't know well. That's what makes it so dangerous. So envy, if we want to define it, is experiencing pain at the good fortune of others. It's being pained by someone else's happiness. It's the exact opposite of what we see Paul describing his love here. There's someone who is rejoicing, and instead of rejoicing with them, uh, you may outwardly be doing that, but inwardly you're weeping because it didn't happen for you. Or you hear news of someone who's going through a really terrible time and secretly, I mean, it's so gross, right? But don't, right? You're not allowed to look at me like this isn't true because I know it's true of every single person, right? You hear good news of someone else and secretly, or you, you hear bad news. You hear, you know, of the downfall of someone else and secretly, even just in a little bit inside, it makes you feel a little happy because it makes you feel a little bit better about how you're doing. I wanted to find envy one way. It's, it's, um, I heard one writer say, envy is uh, when you're miserable, wanting to make sure that everybody's just as miserable as you are. And listen, don't take that away from me. That's all I have in college football this year, okay? I'm rooting against everybody. Everybody. Because I need you to be as miserable as I am. Now, where's it come from? And the answer's in the text. Pride. It says, don't be haughty. Haughtiness. I mean, this is what's wrong with the human heart. I hope you're reading with us a community Bible reading, but we've been reading about King Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Daniel, and what? What's going on with those guys? They're proud. It says their hearts were lifted up. It doesn't go very well for them. The Lord doesn't take kindly to that sort of thing, and so they begin to think too highly of themselves. That's pride. Me, right? I am the big deal. Self-fixation, self-preoccupation. It's the root of all sin. Persistent selfishness. C.S. Lewis said that pride like this is naturally competitive, and it's a keen insight, I think. He said, the truth is we don't get pleasure out of having things, but only from having more things than everybody else has. Nobody's proud of being rich or good-looking, he says. We're only proud of having more money and being better-looking than others. And so Edwards, again, he wrote this. He says, because it is our natural disposition to love to, to love to be the uppermost, we dislike and are opposed to the prosperity of others because it makes us feel inferior. We look at everyone as a rival, he said. We cannot bear to think of anyone as a superior. In other words, pride and envy cause us to feel like we're in competition with everybody else, which means that we are constantly living, we look around, and we grade ourselves on the basis of everybody else's work, and so everywhere we go, Constantly, we're living either with a sense of an inferiority complex or a superiority complex, depending upon where we think we rank in relation to everybody else, and both are pride. I mean, that's the point. Self-righteousness, but also self-pity. Both start with what word? 
self. And so there really are two ways pride and envy can cause us to fail to love sincerely. And again, that means without hypocrisy. By failing to connect emotionally. with See, this, is, this keeps us from connecting emotionally with the, with the experiences of other people. And withholding ourselves in ways that are sinful from them when we're meant by God to be rejoicing together and weeping together. Two ways that we can do this. And the first is... Uh, we do this by sin, selfishly, sinfully, selfishly insulating our lives from sadness and pain, especially when it's experienced by others. So when we, when we refuse, when we're not weeping, when other people are weeping, and there's some pretty awful ways we do this, right? I mean, how do you feel when the kid who's playing in front of your kid on the travel baseball team goes down with an injury? Do you think, oh, man, that's terrible, or do you say, this is what happens, I've seen this, okay, this is what happens most of the time. Oh, man, oh, man, that's terrible. And then you turn to your wife, it's bump, right? Because, what is, that wasn't funny, y'all don't think that was funny? I thought y'all would think that was funny, because like, that's what happens, right? Hey, my kid's in the game, my kid's in the lineup. Do you see that? Do you see what that does? You see how, if you do that, you've disengaged emotionally from the experience of that, of that kid and his parents who just went down? Okay, so there can be gross ways we do this. And then there are just the ways we refuse to connect emotionally with people who are, who are hurting by, we do it all the time in all, in all different ways, by just removing our presence or by coming in when in the middle of, some, here's the worst thing you can do. And it really is, this is a strategy for not engaging emotionally when somebody's in a really bad spot and you just rush in and you just immediately start to fix things. Right, it's a way of not connecting your heart to their heart, instead of just offering presence or denying that their pain is real and just telling them, you know what, you gotta get it together, let's, let's suck it up, let's go. And so we really, do, we really do fail in this regard by selfishly insulating our lives from the sadness and pain of others. But the other thing we do is we, uh, we, refu- we, we uh, fail to really connect emotionally as this text is calling us to by selfishly resenting the successes and the victories of others too by not rejoicing when they're rejoicing as Paul said instead feeling sorry for myself that it didn't happen to me and Lloyd-Jones I think is really really insightful here he says this is this is way harder you with me you see that is that that's way harder than the other I mean in, in one sense it's far more natural for us to be weeping with those who are weeping I mean even sinfully failure and loss um stops the person from being the competition because again I'm 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 above them now and so as long as I'm comfortable we typically are comfortable in relationships where we can really see how we are the superior to the other person and so when somebody else experiences some kind of pain or or failure or loss they they kind of go below us on the on the ranking and it and it becomes a little easier for us to engage with them so Lloyd Jones says indeed for time being we feel that we are in the better position we're not weeping they are we're up and they're down so we can afford to weep with them. But this, he says, this thing of rejoicing when people are rejoicing, of celebrating the successes of other people, he says, it's really hard. It's really hard to, uh, to not see other people succeeding and not be full of jealousy and self-pity because pride in that instance makes us feel like we're losing. If someone else is, is winning, then I'm losing. If we, but, you know, if we are a body, then when one of us wins, we all win. That's the truth. But what happens in envy is there's competition. And so there's a flated sense of injustice. 
when you think, when, you know, when you win, I think, you know, well, why, why you and not me? I mean, why do you get that? And I don't, don't I deserve that? Not you. And then what happens in my heart is it feels like, you know, the world is not right until we level this out. As long as you have it and I don't, then, then things are just wrong in the world. And so it becomes my job to take it away from you. We do this. And we do it in really devious ways. By actively sabotaging other people's happiness. By rooting against one another. By turning others against, you know, turning others against you. Let me just talk about myself here. I mean, right, if, how good, how good when your team loses at noon, how good does it feel to watch your rivals lose at 3.30? Doesn't it make the day okay? Doesn't it feel good to watch your rivals lose? And just glory in that. One thing to do that in college football. Another thing to do that in your friendships. And then there are the more subtle ways but just as uh, diabolical, really, like trying to take away your happiness by just refusing to add my joy to your joy. Have you experienced that? If you have a friend and something good happens in your life and your friend doesn't celebrate with you but they get sad or, or they get angry because of jealousy and envy, it takes away your joy, doesn't it? When you're struggling with envy, you don't see it, of course, because you're only thinking about yourself. You're grieving for yourself. You don't, you don't see the way you really are actively destroying the other person's joy. And that's why Paul says in this text, verse 16, look there, he says, live in harmony with one another. He says, don't look at people as competitors. That destroys love. It will turn you into a hypocrite who claims to be a friend, but secretly you're rooting against people and hoping for their downfall. Root for one another, he says. Because when someone is sad, stop your life and go be sad with them. And when a friend is successful, celebrate it. Celebrate it as if it's, you know, it's the thing that happened to you as well. Don't let yourself, don't let, you know, don't let it make you feel sorry for yourself because it didn't happen to you. Edwards goes on in a sermon about envy to say, Envy is the disposition of the devil and partakes in his likeness. So it is the disposition of hell and partakes of its misery. It destroys us, this sin does. It is the one sin that is no fun at all. The rest of them are pretty fun, at least for a time. But this one isn't. We should run from it. We should absolutely flee for our lives uh, when we experience this in our hearts. So how do we do that? How do we fight then? And that's the third point. How does our love for one another um, get secured in Jesus, And here we have to dig a little deeper in this text and get behind the English words. This is why we make pastors study Greek and Hebrew in seminary, by the way, because the meaning of the text is really left out of the translation, which is, you know, somewhat. It's a little unfortunate the way this gets translated, and it's difficult. I understand why they did it this way. So if you look there again, um, in verse 16, Paul says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now, what it, what it literally says in the original language is this. It says, be, be of the same mind toward one another, not haughty in mind, but going on with the lowly. So the same Greek word is repeated twice in one sentence there. Be of the same mind toward one another, not haughty in mind. And the word is phron, phroneo, 
which phrenology, if you, if you, you know what that is, the study of kind of the way the shape of the head affects, um, you know, health and, and thinking and that sort of thing. And so it refers to having a, a particular perspective or view of things. It's the way you think about and see the world. So we know from 12.1.2 that uh, the power to be transformed, look, if you have a Bible right in front of you, if you go back up to those verses, you'll see that the power to be transformed not conform to the world is uh, the renewal of our minds. It's a really important concept in this letter that, that I don't know that we've really hit on as we've walked through it. Paul's very interested and very concerned about this. In Romans 8, 5, for example, he says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the flesh. Same word, to set the mind, right? <clears throat> those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, he says, but to set the mind on the spirit is life in peace. Not just in Romans, though. It's really all over his letters. Philippians 2, which we read as an assurance of pardon earlier, he says, have the mind of Christ. So this text is not calling us to have a certain course of action as much as it is beginning with us to have a certain mindset, to have a certain mental map of the way that we think about the world and the way that we relate to one another as a people covenantally bound to one another in this fallen world we live in. He says there's a certain mental map. And so he says there, be of the same mind towards one another. That's what verse 16 really, really means. Have equal regard for one another, in other words. Don't think of anyone as any higher or lower than anyone else. That's what he's talking about. So what does this? And I think there are three things, and it's just what I want to end with. Three, three components of the mental map we need to live with uh, that allow us to live this way having equal regard for one another, not thinking of anybody as any better or worse, not, you know, not allowing the successes of others to really bring us down or, or whatever the case might be. And I'm going to just finish by highlighting each of them. And here they are. First, he says, if you, want, if you want to have your love secured, you have to first be mindful of Christ. So Philippians 2.5, if you look back in your worship folder at that passage we read, says, have the mind of Christ. It's the same word there for now. Uh, in, in the passage, it also says, do nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than yourselves. And then it goes on to describe how you live that way. It's the mind of Christ. He says, have the mind of Christ. And what is that? Well, it says that even though Jesus was God, he didn't consider that high position something to be held onto. But actually what he did, the movement of the gospel is so beautiful that this most high God um, did not consider that state of exaltation something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and became a man, and he lived his life serving and not being served, and he was obedient to God in love for us all the way to the cross. B.B. Warfield, in a sermon on the text, said, and this is my paraphrase, he said, when it says that, the old Greek word is, when, when it says that he emptied himself there, when he became nothing, it's the kino, kino is that word there, it means he emptied himself it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his godness. He didn't stop being God. Warfield says, no, what it means is, is that he emptied himself of self. Here's his words. He said, he did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others and to sacrifice self once and for all upon the altar of compassion. So the incarnation it was a cosmic universal rearranging um, excuse me universe rearranging act of humility 
I mean, love is locating your happiness in the happiness of someone else. That's exactly why God came in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that the heart of God for us is the exact opposite of envy. God did not see our sadness and rejoice. He saw it and he wept, and in his weeping, he came to the rescue. God doesn't begrudge the successes and the happiness of others. Jesus put his happiness in our happiness, and that's why he went to the cross. And that's the only thing that can destroy envy, his love, his humility. And the way to be of the same mind toward one another is to have a mind full of Christ. His humble love, washing feet, and then turning to us and saying, as I have done for you, so you must do for one another. That has to be part of our mental map. But not only that, secondly, to be mindful not only of Christ, but also to be mindful of grace. Because if the problem is pride and the competition that it creates, then if the element of competition is somehow removed, then the pride is gone too. Do you understand that? That's what Lewis said anyway. And so the way to be of the same mind toward one another is to have a mind full of grace. Brian Hedges uh, writes this. He says, The most effective medicine for envy is the pure spiritual milk of God's goodness. Gratitude is the posture of soul that receives this goodness, and gratitude is fundamentally incompatible with envy. Grateful people do not envy. Indeed, they cannot. You see, the soil that envy grows in is merit. It's all about justice, who deserves what, and so forth. And, you know, if I think I deserve something that you've got, then that's where all of that stems from in me. The bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. But, of course, if you're a Christian, it's the wrong mind to live with because Christianity isn't merit. It's grace. There are no winners and losers. Our successes are not rewards, they're gifts. If God chooses to do good to someone else, that doesn't mean he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he loves me any less. I mean, the right mind that we're to have is to know that everything is grace. And then what happens is resentment begins to become gratitude. Remember how Romans 12 begins. In view of God's mercies, Paul says, nothing is merit, all All is mercy. To Brian Hedges again, he says, Those whose hearts are overflowing with thankfulness to God for all his kindness towards them have no room for envy's ugly faces. Gratitude doesn't stop with God's kindness to us. It is also thankful for what God gives to others. This is the true sign of a new heart. When you look at what God gives to other people and not to you, and you say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, because you've been so kind to them and so kind to me. Isn't that great? Be mindful of grace. And then lastly, be mindful of the body. The way to be of the same mind towards one another is to have a mindful of the body. We are a body, we're told in in chapter 12, verse 3. That means that, that nothing can happen to you without it affecting me. Nothing happens to one of us without it happening to all of us. Now, it may not feel that way, but it is true. Whatever happens... To any of us is happening to all of us, and that is the right mind. If I'm rooting against your happiness, then I'm destroying my own happiness in the process because my happiness is connected and attached to yours. Do you see how foolish that is? And that's what it means to be a body. So uh, as I close, listen to Lloyd-Jones one last time. He says, there is no more thorough test of our faith than the ability to feel with other Christians. I love that statement. 
He said, it's so much easier for me to be right about every dot and command and tittle of the faith to which I adhere than it is in actual practice to rejoice with them that rejoice and to weep with them that weep. What about you? Has your faith produced in you the ability to feel with others? Are you engaged emotionally in the highs and lows of people's lives? Are you, are you this, this is the question I asked myself this week, are you the kind of, am I the kind of person that when someone is rejoicing or when they're weeping, they think, I gotta get Drew over here. I want him around. Because I know if I'm weeping, he'll weep with me. And I, I know if I'm rejoicing, he's the guy I want to come and celebrate with me. If you want a, an alternate outline for this uh, sermon, uh, the way we become that kind of people is to know this, to know first that love humbly has a mind full of others. Secondly, envy pridefully has a mind full of me. And the only way to get beyond that is to know thirdly, in the gospel of Jesus we learn, the gospel really is the revelation that God has a mind full of us. And that's the difference. And so let's pray and celebrate that. Can we pray together? Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh Lord. How vast is the sum of them, the psalmist says. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand on Anna Maria Island. You do not begrudge any successes. You do not withhold your heart from any sadness, but the meaning of history in some ways, as uh, Walter Storff has said, is there are the tears of God, that you, you weep with your people. And because your heart breaks over the, the brokenness of this world, because your heart is sad with the, with the grief that is ours because of sin and death that still holds sway, you have come in the person of Jesus to rescue us. And so, Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks this morning for the great work that you've done to save us uh, Jesus, I thank you that you came weeping. I think of it, the tomb of Lazarus. You came, Lazarus, you came weeping with those who weep. And, and Lord Jesus, you came rejoicing. I think of you at the wedding of Cana. Uh, you did this so perfectly. And so because we now have your heart, would you change our hearts by the power of your spirit for us to have your heart so that like you, we would be uh, those who emotionally engage, who are connected as a body with one another and with our neighbors and friends, weeping when they weep and rejoicing when they, when they rejoice because we need that kind of support from one another to make it through this harsh, cruel world. And so shock our hearts this morning, bring us back to life that we might do this work of love, testifying to your love for us and that it might be to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So his heart for you is the beating heart for your love for others. Envy's a, a really ugly pride and envy. They're really ugly, you know, yucky things. Uh, what good news then uh, that if, if we discover things about ourselves that, that would cause us at first to despair, to remember uh, that he knows us all the way to the bottom. It says when our hearts condemn us, he, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. And so nothing takes him by surprise. The promise of this benediction is just that, that as he sends you, he promises to be with you all the way to the end. Amen? Amen. And so uh, with his beating heart, we go to fight our own sense of pride and envy towards others, to go with the courage to give our, our hearts to emotionally connect with other people, rejoicing when they rejoice, weeping when they weep, because our world so desperately needs an army of people who know how to do that. So go in the power of his spirit uh, with these words ringing in your ears. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. I hope you'll come tonight at 5 o'clock in Lakeland to be with us as well.